Welcome back to another edition of the podcast. So today I'm your host, Michael Bagani, and on the line with me, I have Pete Weber. Pete, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Uh, maybe I should say as well as could be expected, since there is so much unknown in our world right now. Yeah, I could say the exact same thing. With uh, hockey, you know, uh, we have learned recently that uh, the proposed 2014 playoff uh, format has been confirmed by both the NHL and the NHLPA. So very exciting news there, I must say. Very exciting news. Still a lot of negotiating to go uh, before we get down to the final points of all of this. And I know the biggest concern among those four teams that would get the buys, what do they do? while these other teams are playing and getting tournament tough. Exactly. And I'm pretty sure uh, the point of discussion is that they would have their little uh, own practice tournament. But another question that rose is, will the change, will the seeds change? Yes. And things are maybe close enough where you'd think uh, that could be a problem. But if we're going to be in two or four neutral sites, that is going to take care of most of that. Yeah, I must agree. So uh, going back a bit, uh, what made you want to get into sports journalism or broadcasting? Uh, I didn't want to work for a living. Uh, that would be my first easy answer there, Michael. Uh, but I, I think that as a kid, I grew up in West Central Illinois. And as they used to say in the Richard Nixon administration, I know that's ancient history too, will it play in Peoria? Well, I played in Peoria. I grew up about 40 minutes outside of there near the Mississippi River. And Listening to, in, in those days, pre-satellite radio, pre-internet, my connection to the world was a Zenith radio on the tabletop next to my bed, and then a big Zenith down in the family room, where I was constantly tuning in, major league play-by-play, -play, baseball, hockey, basketball, football, on 50,000-watt clear channel stations. And so I fell in love uh, with Lloyd Pettit doing the Chicago Blackhawks. Harry Carey and Jack Buck doing the St. Louis Cardinals. And then uh, as my what my junior year in high school came up, Jack Buck left the Cardinals to do the first year of the St. Louis Blues before Dan Kelly. I was listening to WBAP in Dallas, WCCO in Minneapolis, St. Paul, WJR in Detroit, WGN, WMAQ, WCFL in Chicago, WTMJ in Milwaukee when their team was known as the Braves, and listening to all of those, and I just sort of fell in love with it, especially when I found out that the guys seemed to be having a lot of fun. Then I found out they were getting paid for it. So I thought this would be a good thing to pursue if I could possibly get my foot in the door. Without the social media that we have today, how did you get your foot in the door? Well, a number of strange ways. My senior year of high school, I could not play football. I had a pinched nerve in my neck from a, from a tackling sled. So I took a job hoping it might fulfill some of my sports jones with the local newspaper, the Galesburg Register Mail, taking calls on the prep games as they would come in. So it was primarily a Thursday, Friday, Saturday sort of job, and sometimes Sunday to go in and write the recaps for the Monday paper. There was no Sunday paper at, at my hometown at that point in time. And then all of a sudden I got sent out to cover a few games, and I went to one game that was being broadcast by three different radio stations. And I'm sitting down next to the group that not only were they doing the high school football, but they did the morning drive radio show on their station. Well, guess what? They needed to fuel themselves with coffee by the time it came to the second half. 
and coffee tends to run through your system. So one of the announcers who I had known through family handed the microphone to me as he took off for the Porta John outside the press box. And uh, that's how I first found out. Number one, I didn't have a chance to think about it. I just did it. I found out that I had a chance of being able to do it. So when I went to college, I got involved in the campus radio station uh, from uh, when you get right down to it. Uh, we had 40 guys on the sports side. We did uh, bottom of the hour sports cast every hour, essentially 24-7 through the week. And then we got to do Notre Dame football, basketball, and hockey. Uh, and uh, sometimes when we figured out a way to get a wire across the road, we would do Notre Dame baseball. Well, that is quite the journey you embarked on starting, you know, within, uh, uh, what is it, like your your own uh, basically state. Uh, and then now where you are today is just phenomenal. Well, I've covered the other states <laughs> between uh, – from Galesburg, Illinois, South Bend, Indiana, Buffalo, New York, Los Angeles, California, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Seattle, Washington, back to Buffalo, New York, and then here in 1998 to Nashville. Did you ever play any, so you had the pinch nerve, but did you ever play any sports at college or no? Uh, in college, Notre Dame was great to have an interhall athletic program. So I played interhall football, some interhall basketball. And even some, the first time I'd ever been on AstroTurf, Interhall Lacrosse. And how was that experience? Were, you know, Tremend was it fun at all? Absolutely tremendous. Probably took away from my studies a little bit, mm -hmm, as I confess right now. But yeah, that was, uh, I, I don't know if Notre Dame still has that sort of program because they also provided most of the equipment. That's, that's right. Uh, so how did you get the job with the Nashville Predators? Okay, it was, uh, I was in my home office in Buffalo, and uh, for some who might be familiar, Prodigy was an internet service that put out news and sports news and so on, and we were using high speed at the time, dial-up internet, 1,200 baud modems, and all of a sudden, in May of 97, I saw this announcement from the NHL that they were provisionally awarding franchises to... Atlanta, Nashville, Columbus, Ohio, and Minneapolis, St. Paul, that uh, they would start play over the course of the next four years. So I immediately used that service to locate the founding owner of the Predators and Craig Leopold in Racine, Wisconsin. And I FedExed my materials to him the next day and then just kept following up. So that was 97. Matter of fact, we've been cleaning out our garage and I found the letter here confirming I was coming here to work uh, dated August 20th, 1998, we followed up. And the reason I went after Nashville and not of the, none of the other three was that my in-laws, my wife's family, had relocated to Knoxville, Tennessee some years before. And I said, geez, you know, family trips would be a lot shorter if we were going Nashville to Knoxville rather than Buffalo to Knoxville. And so went after it and just kept pursuing it for a year, got helped out by the fact that one of the people from my Sabres days who became directors, director of communications here, Jerry Helper, sort of was my champion in the front office here. And uh, then the expansion draft to stock the Predators was held in my building in Buffalo in June of 98, plus the entry draft. So there I was able to, if you will, hobnob network with uh, the front office guys for the Predators, both Craig Leopold and the team president, Jack Diller, 
And I found out they like sports bloopers, and I've been collecting them for over 30 years. So I gave them some thumb drives with the sports bloopers on them and entertained them that way. And when it came to 4th of July celebration in the summer of 98, you know, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to the team actually starting. Borrowed my father-in-law's car, drove on over to Nashville, and uh, met with everybody, and that sort of uh, got things all cemented for me. You did cover the uh, U.S. Olympic team I researched in 1984. What was that experience like? Well, that was where I first met Eddie Olchek. He was the winger, Pat LaFontaine, who I'd later be with on the Sabres. There was a defenseman who I thought was going to last for a while. I didn't know he was going to last until he was 49. Chris Chelios on that team. Bob Mason in goal, still around the NHL. Now, that was, though, the follow-up to the Miracle on Ice team. So by that point, Herb Brooks was back in college hockey in the U.S. and then on to the NHL again. So Lou Vero, a Brooklyn kid who started out with roller hockey, had taken up the reins. He didn't have much of a chance. Number one, the U.S. wasn't going to sneak up on anybody anymore. And what finished eighth in that tournament in Sarajevo. But in Sarajevo, tremendous fun. Uh, Because I speak German and my name looks like that, Weber, I was actually one of the few Americans to be able to get into Soviet Union practices at the Zetra Ice Arena or Skandaria, whichever one they were at that day. And so I got to talk with Vladislav Trejak and some of those guys who had rudimentary knowledge of the English language. And because of that, absolutely fantastic. And that's also where I met the Canadian Olympic coach, Dave King, for the very first time. And he's been a tremendous resource throughout my career. Where were you when the Miracle on Ice happened? I was working for the LA Kings, but it was an off night. I was in Seattle doing the least watched college basketball game in Los Angeles history. (laughs) I was doing Pepperdine versus uh, University of Seattle, and it just happened to be airing at the same time as the West Coast replay of the Miracle on Ice game against the Soviets went on that Friday night. So I had to rely on my very, very primitive uh, video cassette recorder to actually see that game when I got back home to L.A. Well, that's good that you just caught some action of it because it was quite a wild game. Was it ever? Was it ever? And I've got a friend who uh, is Kurt Chaplin, who was one of the announcers on the People's Court TV series. And he was working for ABC Sports at the time and had his cassette machine with him to be ready for highlights, etc. He recorded the whole game and that got used in several documentaries, one on ESPN and another on NHL Network Radio where he was uh, actually doing the play-by-play of it and did a fine job, too. With the Miracle on Ice getting a movie, do you think that, uh, because I'm assuming you've watched the movie, do you think at all that it's realistic at some point? Oh, yeah. And number one, I was in the first movie, the ABC TV, made-for-TV movie that aired in, what, March of 81. And Bob Miller, my partner on The Kings, and I, had voice roles in it, I think maybe because we were the only ones who could pronounce names like Bilya Ledinoff and uh, <laughs> not sound like we were, you know, spitting out marbles as we did. So that was a lot of fun, but it, it wasn't quite the same as the uh, miracle with Kurt Russell being in it. A uh, little bit different there, but, and they used players off the UCLA club hockey teams, and I think the USC club hockey team too, to fill the various roles of the Olympic teams. So they did, with the budget they had, absolutely the best that they could. But the Kurt Russell movie by far exceeded that. And if someone was fortunate enough 
to purchase the DVD of that uh, miracle movie. There's also a great, great uh, interview on there that they conducted with Herb Brooks to get background information before. And by the time the movie got released, Herb had already been killed in the car crash that summer of uh, what, 2003, I think it was. Wow, that is uh, that's quite the story then that they were at least able to get the interview off in time. Yes. And so that makes that even more precious, I think, when you go through that DVD set. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the NHL was barred from playing in 2004 and 05 with the lockout uh, due to the owners and players not agreeing. What did you do to stay busy? Let's see. I did a minor league baseball podcast. I've, I've done over 2,000 minor league baseball games. I did that for a, a magazine that was uh, going at the time called At the Yard, a good old baseball expression. Uh, they, that also took me to a bit of a reunion with Billy Ripken. Uh, Billy was the shortstop for us in Buffalo in 95. And I we went to the Ripken Minor League Experience where we went with a bunch of guys who probably didn't belong on the Diamonds. But we went to Brooklyn and we went to Staten Island, uh, New York Penn League ballparks. And the guys had a chance to see what it was like to be a pro ball player. And I chronicled that. And then that fall, because it's still, you know, that was 2000, summer of 2004, that fall it certainly looked like we weren't going to get going on time. And obviously, as it turned out, didn't get going at all. I started a Southern pro football broadcast. And uh, there was a, I'm in Nashville. So it was a record label guy who wanted to do that. So I did that for him. Uh, throughout the course of that season. Then the following year, uh, as what we didn't know for sure, we were coming back with hockey until early July. Uh, so I w had already started doing the minor league baseball podcast yet again. And I filled in some on the Nashville Sounds broadcast here at home. Uh, did, was it ever heartbreaking? Because like, you had to move from the uh, minor league baseball podcast back to hockey. So was there ever any... Uh, feelings I had to leave? Uh, well, I continued. I, I finished the season with it, and it got, a, it got a little, the time got a little crowded, but never to the point where it was impossible to do. I mean, uh, sports has been a love of mine my entire life. Uh, I'm a kid that growing up, we had usually five newspapers a day in the house from Chicago, St. Louis, Peoria, and from the hometown of Galesburg, and I just absorbed all that stuff. Uh, plus using that tabletop radio I referred to earlier. So uh, I love them all, uh, and that's just the way it went. You've covered the Predators for 20-plus seasons, only missing two games. What has contributed to your own Ironman streak? Uh, maybe the uh, the adulation I in which I hold Cal Ripken, Cal Ripken Jr., and what he did, and not to mention my broadcast partner here for many years, Terry Crisp. I think... His former teammate, Glenn Hall, has the one unbreakable record in sport, even if we don't put this qualifier on it. But he played 502 consecutive games in goal before they wore masks. Now, if you do that without a mask, that's incredible. And But try to find anybody today. There's no NHL goaltender today playing much more than 76 games in a year, and that's a real high-water mark. So I, I think that is what is incredible there that that when you think about the things that guys have done in sport that just cannot be equaled again if not no way surpassed that is the one record right there glenn hall or as terry crisp refers to him and many of his friends do too the ghoulie glenn hall the ghoulie still with us 
and still in Stony Plain, Alberta, with the barn, he always said, kept him from reporting to training camp on time. It was a small shed, not a full-sized barn. And some of the guys went back and visited Glenn and found out years later, they envisioned him going on this huge corn crib combination barn with farm implements in it. No, it was no bigger than the she shed you see on some of the insurance commercials on television today. Yeah, that, that is true. Uh, we spoke a bit off camera about like the all-star game and how you did one in Los Angeles, Buffalo, and now uh, Nashville. Out of those three, which one was the favorite? Well, my favorite was because all my friends were here in Nashville. The hockey world all descended upon here in late January of 2016. And I also think about how lucky we were. We were on the road the weekend beforehand, and Nashville got hit with one of its rare, heavy snowfalls. And that paralyzed the city while we were gone. <laughs> back, I think on Wednesday or Thursday of that week, the snow was all gone. Traffic was moving smoothly. And then all of a sudden, the four-block area, including Bridgestone Arena around it, became like a huge hockey campus. It was so much fun. The thing about real estate, and I practiced that for a bit when I was in Buffalo, the number one category is always location. The location downtown for this arena is absolutely perfect, as we found out the following year when the Stanley Cup final came here. You did call the – you're the radio play-by-play. Uh, you you did call the Predators games when they went on that magical run to make the 2017 finals. What were those games like? Incredible rush of adrenaline. I mean, the feeling of electricity every day you walked into the rink. And keep in mind, this started out much like my – buddies in Los Angeles had it earlier in the decade, they went in as the eighth seed. So not much was expected of them or, or for them. And here they go and they sweep the number one seed, Chicago Blackhawks, in a way paying them back for several previous playoff series defeats and then move on to St. Louis, then move on to perhaps the most physical series I have seen since the days of the Philadelphia Flyers when they when the Predators beat the Anaheim Ducks, but the Ducks beat them up pretty well and then move on to the final against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, from Let's see, I, I think that ended June 11th, that Stanley Cup final. And I think I was finally recovered about three weeks later. I, I w you, you talk about just not leaving anything in the booth, not leaving anything on the ice. That was the situation for me. I'm sure it was. Uh, Patrick Hornfist, you know, a former Predator, scored that Stanley Cup clinching goal in Game 6. Did that add any salt in the wound? Only a little. I mean, because somebody's going to have to do it right. And it wasn't like he was the thorn in the Predator's side throughout that. But Patrick, to me, is the epitome of the guy who puts himself on the line to get the job done. And in many ways, because we always referred to a Holmquist on the Red Wings as the Swedish Redwood. But he would back his way into the other goaltender. Patrick Hornquist went in nose first, and he probably got, he, you know, if to use the old term face wash, he probably has the cleanest face in the NHL because of that approach to hockey life. And uh, teammates absolutely love him for it. Yeah, I must agree. Uh, it's almost like he has no scars, no bowel scars whatsoever when he's playing. Yeah, I mean, how that happens, I have no idea, but all praise to him. Like you said, uh, the Predators got beat up by the Ducks. 
Do you think if the Predators were somewhat more healthy, they stood a better chance against the Penguins? I think they would have if they had had Ryan Johansson, yes. Uh, but uh, Johansson, that was a war for him, and he turned out to be a victim of it. Uh, we have been reliving these uh, with replays over the course of the last several weeks, and he had that compartmental syndrome. And before uh, the Cup final, before rather Game Six of the Western Conference Final came back here, because of the compartmental syndrome, they open up your leg and let things clear and drain. And it was open for about three or four days. They sewed him up the day we were back here for game six, and it would turn out to be the concluding game of that series. And the doctor said, okay, we're going to send you home now. Home? Are you kidding me? The game's tonight. Take me down to Bridgestone Arena. I want to be there. Lo and behold, he was. When he arrived, they said, hey, do you want to wave the rally towel on the bandstand to get the game started? He goes, absolutely, I do. And he was joined by Kevin Fiala, who had broken his femur uh, on that band stage as well, broken the femur in the uh, second round against the St. Louis Blues. So it was kind of like the uh, wounded come back to rally the masses. And it's almost like the, uh, using Ryan Johansson and Kevin Fiala can almost pump up the crowd even more than they already are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you consider, and you look at the numbers from those playoffs, Predators' depth was very important. They had, what, uh, 19 guys score goals in the postseason. And among those uh, was Freddie, uh, Freddie Gaudreau, who scored his – he had played like 20-some games with the Predators that regular year and had not scored a goal. He had contributed but had not scored a goal. He got three goals all in the Stanley Cup final before he scored a regular season NHL goal. That is a true rarity. It really is an anomaly comparing, like, to regular hockey players. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like uh, Chris Draper of the Red Wings and started out in the Winnipeg Jets organization. He scored his first NHL goal before he scored his first AHL goal. And uh, that is one of Barry Trotz's, former Predators head coach, favorite trivia questions. Did you ever, uh, when Barry Trotz won the cup with the uh, Capitals in 2018, did that ever bring any, I guess, sad memories to how he never won a cup in Nashville? No, happy memories for him. Because finally he had a club that was equipped to do so. And he did. And how many times had it been said about the Capitals, they won't be able to get past the Pittsburgh Penguins. Well, they got past the Pittsburgh Penguins and went on to their cup glory. And I think... And it wasn't because of Trotsky's coaching, but I think the premier Stanley Cup celebration was put on by his captain, Alex Ovechkin, who uh, is going to be known forevermore for celebrating that Cup triumph. That was a crazy summer. Probably one of the most crazy summers ever. Yes, absolutely it was. Maybe not, okay, some people, it's, it's too far back in, in time, but let's Keep in mind, 26 years ago, and Mark Messier and the Rangers, they became the first ones to have the cup for a day. And I believe the Stanley Cup in the summer of 1994 visited more gentlemen's clubs in Manhattan than ever before and ever since. It was after that that the Hall of Fame started assigning, if you will, a cup chaperone to those proceedings. How shocked were you when Shea Weber got traded to the Montreal Canadiens for P.K. Subban? I don't know if shock adequately describes it. Uh, and when you think about it, it was probably the biggest one-for-one -one trade in NHL history. 
And I hated it because Shay and I worked together on his fantasy baseball teams. I was <laughs> on all of that. There's always that connection somewhere. Yeah, and Shay, you know, and when Shay was coming back from a knee injury one year, how did he rehab? He signed up for a wood uh, bat baseball league back home in British Columbia and got his leg going back absolutely fine. One thing you should know about Shea Weber, he loves baseball as much as I. We are not, we've tried to trace back the Ancestry.com and can't find where my relatives came over from the Black Forest of Germany and when his relatives came over from Germany. But with the name Weber being very common, I can understand that. So, but he loves baseball and I first saw how much he could also execute at baseball. One spring training, we were in Arizona to play the Coyotes, and he hit several over the wall at the Oakland A's uh, campsite during batting practice. So that sounds like those old stories of Gordy Howe doing the same at Tiger Stadium back years and years ago. Do you know how? So Nashville Predator fans have lots of traditions they, that go on during the game. One of those traditions is uh, chanting uh, Paul once the last minute of play is called out. Do you know how that tradition started? Well, I know the guy who did it. As a matter of fact, I was on a Zoom call with him last night. Mark Hollingsworth is sort of the mayor of what is referred to reverentially as Section 303. Up on the cheap seats, maybe six sections over to, to the left of where I broadcast from. And he organized that group kind of like it is at Japanese professional baseball, where there are they have cards, they have and they just call out a number for a certain chant, and the guy mm -hmm. and the people all execute it. So that's how that all got started in the very first season of the Predators franchise. And now Paul McCann has not been the PA man all of that time. He is the third on a regular basis since the team started, but when the team started, he was a season ticket holder sitting up below our broadcast location in Section 210. So a lot of people have been here a long time, but they are still welcoming all the newbies, if you will, as people move here from other hockey-mad cities and have had themselves a, a great time. That is quite the story. So you're saying they, that they call out basically a dance number and the, and the fans know what to do? Yes, they that is insane. They have, a, they have a website, if you want to check it, section303.com, and you can take a look there. And uh, they will spread through that. And, of course, now with all of our mobile devices, they can do things quickly that way, too. Now, you said that uh, they're pretty close to where you're broadcasting. Uh, without section 303 in the, in the stands, how would that change how your broadcast will go? Uh, probably greatly. It would change the atmosphere in the building a great deal. So I think we have to uh, give uh, homage to the denizens of Section 303. And it's interesting, on a season ticket basis, I don't think there's a ticket available in there. So people are trying to buy 304, 305 to be nearby to them. And uh, that has gone on for quite a long time. Now, if the NHL allowed for a cutout uh, cardboard for fans like the Korean baseball is doing, <laughs> would, do you think that would add to the ambiance? Well, they're not going to make noise. And I, I don't know if I want to have it like with the old days when I was growing up, sitcoms on television with laugh tracks and so on. Yeah, uh, that would be annoying. Yeah, would, it be, would it ever be? And uh, so I have done, in the last several years, one game in a TV studio remotely, not a Predators game, but a, 
a Nashville soccer club game. And there they were able, at least the team was in Indianapolis, so they were able to pump the crowd noise back to me. But now there'd be no crowd noise to pump in. The crowd noise helps a broadcaster a great deal. Uh, picking up his intensity, if he doesn't see why right away, or sometimes underlying why he feels intense as the play develops. So that's going to be intriguing. I, we don't know yet, among the things that are still to come out of the NHL directives, we don't know yet uh, if all broadcasters will be allowed on site. And how so, weird would that be if you're not on site because you're so used to it? Exactly. But a job is a job, and you find some way around it. Now, I will say this. Last week, I had a nightmare. The nightmare was this. I was doing one of those games remotely, and my video feed went out. Oh, that That's is bad. bad. That's scary, so I, man. Yes. So that I guess would be brutal. Have to go on NHL.com and get the best. And I would have it up anyway, believe you me. Have it up anyway as background for what is going on. And if I had to refer to it, I'd have to refer to it. Now, with like we said earlier, uh, the NHLPA and NHO did pro uh, accept the proposal for the 24 teams. With Nashville, it's slated to go up against Arizona. Do you think yeah. that would be a more of a defensive series? Good chance. We haven't seen it. Well, we haven't seen anybody for so long, right? But we haven't seen Arizona for a particularly long time. So uh, I'd have to say I'm going to go along with that proposal. But the other thing is, with teams having been away from the ice for so long, there's a good chance coaching is going to come in. And when coaching really comes in, it's usually the defensive part of the game that comes to the fore. So I am going to go along with your inclination there. We'll see how it, I hope we see how it really plays out. Now with the playoffs being slated for, I guess, mid-July, mid this is going to be one of the healthiest playoffs in recent history. Does that add to oh. the enjoyment of the viewer? Probably will, and probably will make it more difficult for Las Vegas to put lines on these series because so much will be unpredictable. I mean, let's face it, yes, so much was accomplished in the 69 or 71 games everybody had played before the pause button was hit. But now you've got to regenerate absolutely everything. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Now, in terms of hub cities, uh, there's a report that came out, uh, I guess, yesterday or something like that, uh, that Canada or the NHL wouldn't go to a Canadian city unless if they uh, got rid of the 14-day quarantine rule. Uh, yeah. So with that being said, what American city would you like to go and, I guess, stay? Uh, I'd rather stay here at home without any question. We have the facilities to do all that they want to do. Uh, but I guess the next best for the Preds would probably be, and we're going to do this, I'm, I know, by conferences. The next closest actually is Columbus, Ohio. Uh, just a yeah, 15 minute flight. But Chicago, Minnesota, St. Louis, as long as we're not going way out west. Would that mean that you wouldn't want to go to Las Vegas? Uh, it's just, you know, in a way, it sounds like we're going to be gone for a long time. And uh, Las Vegas is not the worst city to go to. My former neighbors uh, from Buffalo live out there. So I could spend some time. I think I could spend some time with them. Nobody knows with the, with the quarantine provisions that are being discussed if that would be possible or not. But, uh, you know, and again, I don't know if I would travel. 
I might be doing things right here. So that's true. Uh, yeah. This this grandiose studio that I have here, you know, hooked up with a Comrex product, I might be in doing the play by play actually from right here at this desk. And how odd would that be if you were to do your play by play at home? It would be extremely odd for my wife and for our cat. We would probably have to segregate the house upstairs, <laughs> down, upstairs downstairs so that you know, it wouldn't be too crazy. And Claudia might have the game on the radio upstairs, and I have feedback coming down here, so have to put some dividers up and so on. Yeah, that would be very odd. Going back to All-Star Games, they did trial puck and player tracking uh, this year. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I love it. And uh, Now, I'm not a super analytics fan. I like the indications it gives us, but I still think the most important thing is, as some coaches would say, the eye test and use the analytics to back up your eyes. Maybe that's the reverse of how it should be. But to be able to tell people how fast someone is skating rather than taking a guesstimate at it and how many other things, like I'm thinking how great that would have been if because if you watched Major League Baseball and you see launch angle and so on, I would have loved to have been able to pass along the launch angle from earlier this year when Pecorine scored his goal against oh, yeah. the Chicago Blackhawks. He really got that elevated very, very well. I thought Kirby Doc was going to have a chance to knock it down, but it was enough of a launch angle that it cleared him and then bounced and skipped into the net. Uh, and also, you know, essentially escape velocity and, and all of that. But those things I think are interesting. And people in the past have theorized how, fast it is. It's kind of like in the old days in baseball saying, well, he had to be throwing 100 miles an hour. No, he was throwing 91.3 when we got the real uh, empirical evidence on it. So that part of it all I really like. And I tell you, we will probably get a much truer reading on plus minus than ever we had before, ever. Uh, and how many guys' salaries were built on plus minus for many years? Yeah, like the game of hockey has definitely evolved from now with uh, physical back in the day to now speed is at the forefront of it. Oh, big time. Um, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, big time. And I, I, I'm thinking ever since we came back from that lockout that cost us the 2004-2005 whole season, I would not want necessarily to be a defenseman coming into the league right now because with no center red line and the four-check game so much in the forefront, I think when they go back to get a puck, they might as well have targets painted on their backs. You could get killed. There's no way to slow them down. And uh, that is perhaps the biggest change we're seeing in the defensemen that come along in the game now. Yeah, like the defensemen have to be more bulkier, more stronger on the puck because they're, they're afraid of someone like boarding them. Yeah, and having and next. And there's still players in the game that do that. Oh, yeah, and having next that will turn around far enough to give them a chance to find out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, with Pecorine scoring that goal, was that, like, that's a very shocking moment because, you know, a lot of goalies have tried, but most have failed. Yeah, well, and I'm, I just did a thing for NHL.com last night. He was, he had, had practiced that so many times at the end of practice. To me, it was just something that he had worked on for a long time, coming true for him in that game situation, and that was, uh, I can't begin to tell you 
how many people's faces were frozen in a permanent smile after that night just to see Pekka succeeded that. You wouldn't believe how many times at the end of practice sessions, Pekka would take the puck side of his goal, that left side, and drill it down the other end. But he would try to beat UC Saros, his protege, in the other net with that. And he, there would obviously you go that far, the ice is chewed up at the end of practice. There'd be some that would skip over UC's shoulder and so on. But uh, that was an absolute gas to be able to watch that. Looking back on your long career, is there something you would have changed? Yeah, I would have changed the Predators winning the Stanley Cup in 2017. <laughs> you realize when I started with the Kings in 1978, 2017 was the first time I ever was broadcasting a team that went to the Cup final. That's insane. That was an incredibly long wait. Absolutely. Now, other things I did in between. I had four Super Bowls with the Buffalo Bills uh, in a row, as it turned out. Yeah, I'm a Bills fan. I know how that feels. <laughs> and the uh, the NBA championship that I got to call with Magic Johnson and the Lakers his rookie year in 1980. Triple uh, A baseball playoffs, including one of the most incredible things. How, uh, take this. Buffalo Bisons are at Denver. It's a best of, uh, it's a three of five series. They had won the first two games at home, lost the first one in Denver. Here is game four. They're down 9 nothing, heading to the ninth inning and are being no hit. The ninth inning commences. 32 minutes later, what should have been the tying run was called out at home plate for the game's final out. So I've seen some crazy things. So that final score was 9-8 then? Yes. That is a crazy game. Because, you know, 9 nothing. Okay, so you let in a few hits, but, like, it's three outs. That, that can't be that hard. You'd think not, but it certainly was for Denver's pitching staff that night. And, uh, you know, here it was. There had never been a nine-inning no-hitter, and as it turned out, never was at Mile High Stadium. And so by about the seventh inning, all these Denver news trucks are moving out to the ballpark to try and cover this. And uh, what a crazy, crazy night. Last question here. Uh, do you have any advice for aspiring journalists? Journalists and or broadcasters. Journalists and or broadcasters. Okay, because with the reduction of journalistic outlets, and I'm talking about print magazine, etc., cetera, uh, you're going to have to find another outlet to get. Um, here's first. I'm going to recommend a book. Malcolm Gladwell's The Outliers. Fantastic book, and it really spends a lot of time rotating around the hockey world and talking about how youngsters born in the first quarter of the year have a definite advantage over those born later in the year. Yeah, Wayne I've Gretzky, heard that, yeah. Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, both January births. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a January birth, too. I am uh, one as well. <laughs> what's, what date is yours? Uh, New Year's Day. New Year's Day. So you were kind of known, is your middle name tax deduction? Of course, that's in the United States, but uh, it, your middle name could be tax deduction. So Gladwell talks about how the important thing is being able to get the most reps, the most repetitions you possibly can get at what it is you want or like to do. He came up with a number, I think arbitrarily, of 10,000 and called upon how the Beatles left England and went to Germany and honed their craft there, 
and they were probably even better off because they were like in a in an English speaking ghetto in Germany, so they were relying so much upon each other. Uh, and let's let's talk about you know Sidney Crosby beating up his mother's dryer down in the basement, uh, and uh, Wayne Gretzky using his grandmother as his goaltender. He's a little kid on the floor is at home in Brantford, Ontario. He, he, <laughs> that was, uh, those are great stories that way. But I think if you take a look at that, the lesson to take from it is this. You have to find some way to get in your reps. You're using the internet right now. Continue to use it because there aren't many commercial outlets. They are diminishing. Uh, consolidation, consolidation has come into the publishing industry tremendously. Uh, and so you can write, you can broadcast, you can call games, all using the Internet to spread the, if you will, the news of what you're doing and how you're developing. And I think if you do that, that's what you should be doing to get those reps in. I'm not saying Malcolm Gladwell is the be-all, the end-all, but I think that idea of constantly repeating what it is you want to do, and marking your improvement is the most important thing. Well, that would do it here for this edition of the podcast. I'd like to thank, again, Radio Play-by-Play -play for uh, joining us today. That is Pete Weber. Thank you again, Pete. Glad to do it, Michael. And uh, I'm, I'm taking no exception to your cap. I did not have a Predator's cap on to wear to counter this. But, hey, the Winnipeg Jets... They were my favorite WHA team because they hired my boyhood hero away in 1972, Bobby Hull. All right. Thank you again, Pete. You got it.